Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lightspeed Venture Partners. Lightspeed is a globally leading venture capital firm with over $29 billion in capital under management and more than 500 investments across the US, Europe, and Asia. With its dedicated gaming practice, Lightspeed Gaming, the firm is investing from over $7 billion in early and growth stage capital, making it by far the largest fund focused on gaming and interactive technology. Lightspeed's team combines deep expertise in gaming with a global multi-stage investment platform and a culture that truly puts founders first. Selected investments include Epic Games, Snap, and Stability AI, as well as game designers and producers who led the creation of titles like Fortnite, Call of Duty, League of Legends, Valorant, StarCraft II, and many more. For more information, simply go to gaming.lsvp.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, Let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have great panelists. As always, we got Dave, Maria, and Felipe here today for a nice full house. How are you guys doing? Doing well, playing, thanks. Playing Warcraft Rumble. Okay, we got to stay up to date on all the games here. We actually got a lot of variety of topics today, too, on a bunch of different games, which should be pretty fun. But we do have to start with, unfortunately, the, the, you know, the, the dour topic, of course, of uh, continued layoffs which we'll get into, and then you know some acquisitions, which is maybe a good thing. Some some uh, maybe movie news here for video games, which continues for whatever reason. I guess they like money. Fortnite, some interesting news around that, but then also Epic, back in court again, wanting to make sure that Fortnite, you know, money goes to somewhere useful. And then EA doing pretty well, actually, with their, their uh, soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, depending on where you're at game. But let's just uh, jump right into the Bungie bad news, get that out of the way. Well, now I feel like the bearer of these bad news. <laughs> I want to stay on the, I guess they like money. That, that, was, that was a good topic. Okay, so according to an anonymous source, the decision to lay off the staff was Bungie's, not Sony's. The initial assumption when the layoffs were communicated was immediately that it came from Sony because there had been layoffs of Naughty Dog, uh, Visual Arts, Media Molecule, and then there was a recent acquisition from Sony where Bungie was like, no, don't worry, we're not going to lay people off based on this. And then people were laid off. So the reasoning is Destiny 2's underperformance. There was an internal source that estimated that they missed their projections by about 45%. And Lightfall's DLC sales were strong. But since Lightfall, there's just been this massive drop in terms of player engagement, in terms of player spending... The CEO and some other executives, they forfeited their bonuses. Of course, the, the staff of Bungie was asking if the executives look at other levers to pull before laying off the staff. Yeah, no pay cuts were announced, but they announced that they had forfeited their bonuses in the past. That hasn't gone down very well, as you can imagine. And so in terms of the impacts, I think this made the news more. There's been so many layoffs, but Bungie stood out to me because it came at a massive shock to the community because some beloved 
player facing staff members that have been there for a very long tenure were let off. And one of them was actually Destiny 2's composer, Michael Salvatore. And this is something that I just don't really understand. Like maybe they, you know, maybe Michael Salvatore wasn't really fully leading the the OSTs. I don't know. But like Destiny 2, for me, 50% of the immersion comes from the music. And, you know, Rip, Deepstone, Lullaby, that was my pandemic, dreamy music. Yeah, I, I I'm not sure what's going on. And I saw that there was a there was a, a mention in passing from someone at Bungie at Bungie that said the right people are now here to continue taking the projects further. I don't know if that's alluding. It's not for me to speculate. I just know what is in the news. So, uh, as part of these layoffs, there's going to be a delay to the next DLC. Of Destiny 2. I think it's now being delayed to June. Generally, it comes out January is being delayed to June. And also their new extraction shooter called Marathon. That's also expected to be delayed to 2025 now. Do you have any thoughts to add? Oh, and you know, this comes in line. Ubisoft also laid off, I think, 120 some people in the last couple of days. So Yeah, unfortunately, I expect that it'll still continue a little bit longer. We're unfortunately in that time of year when studios often do let team members go as they've finished up their Christmas releases. Yeah, still unfortunate news for everyone in the industry, still continuing with the bad news of layoffs. I guess if you think about it, Bungie like, ha- probably has a lot of employees for only having one live game at the moment that's six years old and kind of dependent on DLC and live service stuff that any like you know unexpected downturn in that revenue coming from that is going to hit them pretty hard in terms of like, I mean, I don't know like what the deal is with Sony in terms of whether or not, uh, you know, they might've had any kind of safety nets there or anything to help like sort of fund them going forward as they're doing probably with marathon. But I guess that, you know, that's kind of a warning of like when you only have one real game out there um, at the moment, you can kind of suffer for probably a bit of shock from that. Like if it just doesn't do well or just doesn't hit the right target, but at the same time, like, I don't know, I guess that's, they kind of work with that. So I, I don't know, maybe they just have too many employees, uh, but it is surprising that they cut some of like the older ones. I mean, maybe it was just a seniority like needed to go for pay reasons or something, but if they're not doing pay cuts too, seems a little strange, but. Yeah, they actually said, I think some employees, again, this is all, I guess, the leaked internal information. The studio itself would have been in jeopardy if they hadn't been acquired by Sony. If they were still independent, they may ha- may have had to close doors. That's pretty scary seeing the developer of Destiny 2, such a massive game in that in that risk. And Destiny 2 is an old, like you said, it's an old game. It's a game that requires a very expensive content treadmill and players devour content, like even the seasons after two, three weeks when I was playing, it was just being drip fed content to try to make it through the season and still have a reason for players to come back every month. It's also on older tech. Uh, Destiny 3 doesn't seem to be coming anytime soon. I remember when I was playing, there were rumors that they were creating a team to build Destiny 3 on a new tech stack that would make it easier to expand the game. And they decided to stick to destiny 2 and try to make it work but it yeah like you grow your your tech your tech debt and then if you're trying to do anything massive it takes longer so i i 
I assume, but I'm confident in my assumption that the the speed of development for Destiny is playing a role in not being able to ship content as fast as they would like. Scary to think that the developers of Destiny 2 would be in jeopardy. I guess it's just funny timing, too, on top of the BlizzCon announcement of World of Warcraft getting another expansion, and that's been out for almost 20 years now. So it just shows, like, I guess, you know, depending on how iconic it is and how entrenched you are to be able to survive, because I'm sure they've had expansions that didn't do as well as they wanted either, but they're also now in Microsoft's hands, and so it's like all these companies kind of getting acquired up, you know, maybe is helping provide some buffer. But speaking of acquisitions, we've got one from Azure Games. Is that you pronounce it? Azure or Azure? I don't know. Indeed, I was going to ask the same because I always pronounce them in a bit of a Spanish, so I don't know. <laughs> well, there's an Azure for sure with an E at the end, so I'm thinking maybe this is Azure, but I just wanted to check. Give okay. us a Spanish, Felipe. Azur. Azur <laughs> <Azure, laughs> Games. But yeah, Azure Games, this is a Cyprus-based mobile games developer and publishers, uh, publisher sorry, have announced that they have purchased the entire uh, portfolio of uh, hyper-casual games from Good Job Games. So for, for those of you that are not familiar with this company, uh, they started a, as a hyper-casual developer and they had already like uh, around 30-something titles, hyper-casual games. They were also the ones that developed, oh, sorry, I forgot the name, Themat, sorry, that uh, we could label it as hybrid casual. And they introduced quite an interesting twist to the uh, Majon Solitaire with a tray at the bottom and had been copied with many, many other titles now and become kind of a trend in the market uh, of mobile games that they also sold it, uh, in this case, to Moon Active. So it seems that they are like getting rid of like the more hyper casual uh, portfolio in order to get found and, and money to, to bet uh, big on the casual games. So they had a casual game in, in soft launch for quite a while. Uh, that is a blast game or match two game. And I think like this is kind of a move to, to focus solely on that or that and maybe other casual games, but like trying to like move on. Uh, maybe as some uh, famous publisher said, like hyper casual is dead. So trying to move on to and focus just on on casual. So, what do you think? Is it, do you think it's a good move? Uh, I definitely think it's a good move on the part of Good Job Games. I mean, they're able to extract some value from you know a portfolio that certainly is challenging times for hyper casual, and you know certainly don't see an improvement for hyper casual. Going forward, there are a lot of things that are certainly against that overall genre, including Unity adding in new charges for their for their engine usage is one of the potential ways that you're going to see a higher costs for hyper casual. Yeah, I think it's a good move for for a good job. As I said, they extract some value, allow them to take some money from that portfolio and put it towards games that they think they'll have more longer term revenue pr- perspective. As for Azure Games, I think you know if they start looking at if they have a very large portfolio that they're able to move customers in, around inside, then potentially they have the ability to lower their general CPI and a little bit more profitable for them, especially if they've already got games that they can see what all the KPIs for them. You know, they've been in the market, they see how they monetize, they see how well they're able to um, do on the on the ad side. You know, they're they're bringing new games to their portfolio that they can share customers with, with an understanding of what the revenue potential is. 
Uh, Philippe, I was wondering your thoughts on the trends of games now being acquired more and more rather than teams and studios. So we saw the acquisition of Stumble Guys, Zen Match that you referenced. Is that could that be because the mobile gaming industry is reaching that maturity where studios have how do you call it like an overflowing portfolio that can be best optimized by selling and then investing in new games rather than sunsetting or trying to continue operating with a skeleton team well in in this case i think like the, the these two cases like one is like the the games from good games and the, the other is stumble guys are, are different so stumble guys to my knowledge was like developed by a kind of an indie team so it was a small team like that the they developed this game and i think they they like get a bit scared with the scale that the game took and they were a bit afraid that maybe they got sued because of the similarities with with Fall Guys and they maybe try to 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 sell it in order to like not not be prosecuted for it. And like I don't know if for a big company like Scopely made sense to really like buy not just the game but also the team. Because like I think like they had resources to to make that happen and like the team wasn't large enough to really like buying the team as well like avoiding like any problems in the transition to to scopley so i think that that case is different from from good job games where i feel like they've probably decided to just sell the portfolio because they want to keep the the talent and they have already maybe transitioned the talent to start focusing more on casual games and maybe these games were just like being like maintained by a few people and like building new no new content and other stuff right so in that case it's more like selling this inventory to to allow to, to really focus but also to have the funds to like i don't know like do ua at a bigger scale when they they find they the perfect market fit for the game that they have instead of having to go elsewhere and raise money as for instance another turkish company dream had to do at that moment so probably it's kind of a strategy to be more autonomous on that I kind of wonder then too, if there's like a different strategy, depending on whether or not you want to take people on, or you're just trying to acquire users. Like I imagine if you were trying to acquire users, acquiring the game makes more sense. If you're trying to acquire talent, acquiring the people makes more sense. But like acquiring both when you only want one seems like that would incur a lot of costs. Like acquiring people when you just want the users is going to be like a huge payroll ad and all that stuff, especially when that's only going up right now and all the problems with that. So I got to imagine like that's probably contributes to some of the decision but i do wonder with some of these companies like like this this one for example when these companies are transitioning from hyper casual to casual or hybrid casual whatever like the big difference right is retention and that's what they're like trying to switch is to have something that's more retention maybe less focus on just quick ad pump stuff like that but i i wonder with some of these companies like do they have the expertise to be able to actually handle that retention design. I mean, you say the, the KPI stuff, definitely, right? They're, they're good at working on kind of that sort of live ops uh, mentality around the KPIs, but like retention like requires, I think a little bit of a different skill set. So I wonder if some of these companies like end up hiring people on, or in this case, if Azure has that talent already and it's like, oh, we you guys are good at developing the games and innovating a bit. And then we have some talent around retention and can help you make that transition. Then I can imagine a situation like that where it actually made total sense to acquire them. So I, I gotta imagine this is like gonna be like kind of an ongoing thing for a lot of these companies going through that transition. I think it will in part will also depend on the types of games. You know, it, a, a hyper casual game is a lot easier to transition from one team to another generally because the code bases are fairly simplistic, the pipelines are fairly simplistic. You know, you only need one or you know one or two or three 
engineers to be able to go in and try and understand how the game was constructed. It becomes a lot more difficult when it's a large scale game, when you start getting into the casual, you know, mid-core and, and up uh, games when they're a lot more complex in the code, their right pipelines are a lot more complex. There's a lot more moving parts to it. So for the hyper-casual, I think in my mind, it makes a little bit more sense in terms of you still have a bit of an ease of transitioning the game from one team to another. It most likely isn't too hard to get in the code and have an understanding of how you know you can work inside there. So probably speaks a little bit towards the you know, not needing the team to come across with the game itself. Yeah, and also I will add that uh, when you like get the team as well, then you need to decide, right? Like, because they are based in a different country. So what that is, is like they are going to operate as a as a company. So I'm buying like the company, but they operate as a sister company within the, the bigger company or are, am I integrating them into my company and being part of that, like that, also have some risk and like even could happen that you buy the team and like they lost they lose the the feeling of belonging and they eventually uh, find another job because they, they don't want to stay right so then you pay for something that you that's not going to last yeah i gotta imagine even with the relocating stuff right where some people just don't want to relocate you might lose team members on that front as well and i mean like luckily we have a little bit like more remote culture thanks to covid to some extent which i know you know some people are very against some people are a bit more pro i think in the game industry it's been kind of one of those things where i think there's like a lot of culture stuff that's maybe lost in the remote work but i'm sure some companies manage it but yeah as you said like especially with this being a global business stuff now right where all these companies are like especially mobile games tend to be i think a little bit more global in that sense uh, although obviously like console has plenty of big studios and stuff so but uh, speaking of one team transitioning to another in terms of IP, we have some news around another Nintendo property transitioning to film. Absolutely. Some amazing news for all of us Zelda fans came out of Nintendo this week. This is great. I got two breaking news pieces to talk about today. So Nintendo announced that Legend of Zelda is coming to the big screen as a live action film. Now, this is a situation where they are really being a key part of bringing the game, bringing the game to the film. They're providing 50% or just over 50% of the financing for the film, meaning that they have control over the film, which I think is a really big part of ensuring that it will be of the high level quality that Nintendo wants, especially out of one of their key franchises. And obviously, you know, this is coming hot off the heels of the success of Super Mario Brothers movie, which I think as of uh, the beginning of November had done over $1.36 billion in box office. Uh, and I'm sure we'll continue to uh, make it up the charts in terms of, you know, as it gets to, uh, to digital downloads and, and so forth. So the two people that were attached to it, there was Ari. Avid is the, the producer working alongside Nintendo, and he is someone who's not, you know, certainly very familiar with bringing big properties to the to the film. He is someone who is behind some of the original Spider-Man's Venom, and certainly is very familiar with you know bringing comic book or, or other media to the film industry. So, very much looking forward to that, and the director. Bell is uh, someone who worked on um, a number of films. Their most recently 
uh, or as the film that he's got uh, coming out uh, very shortly is uh, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. And previous to that, did the Divergent trilogy of films. So certainly uh, some uh, some uh, people that are bringing a lot of interesting perspective, and, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. I think with Nintendo's level of involvement that it will, at the very least, hoping it doesn't suck. <laughs> but I do think that they've got a really solid chance of it uh, being a successful film. Didn't the director do Maze Runner? Yes. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Hopefully not Maze Runner style. <laughs> all right. Yes. We'll see. Um, what I'm loving is now all of the guess who's going to be the cast for the movie. And my favorite pick so far was in The Guardian uh, for Zelda. It's Zendaya from June. I think she'd be such a great fit. Yeah, please, please bring really cool actors. I'm so hyped for this. I loved Mario. It was like feeling Mario in the, in the cinema, and I'm looking forward to the Zelda one. Well, this one's meant to be live action, right? Not CG? Yes, live yeah. action. Yeah. Definitely seems like a bigger risk, given that like you know some of these successes have been more so on the CG or like cartoon or anime side than the live action, just because like it's it's a little harder, I think, to translate video game stuff to live action but in this case zelda was always just kind of like relative fantasy stuff not not anything like really super video gameish like mario kind of was so like maybe there's some some leeway there for uh for like, making it kind of work like with a live action you have to find trying to make it look exactly like it is in the game or the anime whatever it is to cringe i think that happens a lot with the anime live action movies they just get a bit cringe but like with a One Piece live action, I thought it was really good. And so I, I do have hopes it will work out. Yeah, and I do think that is one of the key bits for having Ari in there as well, is that he is familiar of producing, you know, taking pro- you know properties that are very over the top. Like, I mean, Venom is certainly not a boring classical historical film character. It is very much over the top. It is taking a fantastical world and grounding it inside the reality of the real world. So I, I do think that there is some potential for for making it there. And yes, I do want to correct myself. It's the Maze Runner series. Thank you for that, Maria, not the Diversion series that the director Wes Ball has had in the past. But he does have upcoming the, the Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Cool. And you have some other breaking news for us? Yes. GTA 6. Word has come out that we are going to see a trailer for GTA 6 in early December. And uh, people are really getting excited about this. The stock this morning, when I last looked, was up 7% based on the news. Now, Take-Two in the past has suggested that GTA 6 would launch in 2024. And so the timing for the trailer coming out early next month certainly is in line with that. Take-Two said that they are seeing themselves reaching their next phase of growth in fiscal 2025, which is starts in April 2024. So do expect that we'll probably see or hopefully see GTA 6 launching in spring, early summer uh, of next year. But yeah, it was fantastic to see the trailer will be dropping soon. I guess given the spate of delays and games that either, that either have, have been delayed significantly or have come out very half-baked, I got to imagine it's probably more realistic if they're targeting like around summer than maybe fall unless they rush it out because this is a big 
big bet, right? Like, so they, I, I definitely hope they're not going to try and rush it out um, and take their time on it. And I imagine, given the complexity of GTA 5, you know, you always have to go bigger, right? So GTA 6, always a chance that this could be like a real mess if it comes out too early. So I mean, I hope they're not providing too much early guidance where they, like it ends up hurting the stock or something if the game does get delayed. But I would imagine like as long as it gets out by Christmas, right? Like that's the idea. Like if you target summer, you could get it out by fall. Still not a bad situation to be in. But I've got to imagine like, I, I mean, I guess we'll see what the scope looks like, right? When we see the trailer, if we do see one. Yeah. And they, they gave their guidance in terms of uh, the next fiscal year being their next phase of growth back in May of this year. So I think it's a situation where, you know, even back then that they were fairly confident that it was going to hit early enough in the fiscal year that it would be uh, a significant contributor to fiscal year 2025. And for me, that does speak probably summer time frame, but yeah, no later than then the fall ensure to ensure they get their their christmas rush in place i guess the other question too is whether or not it's looking to be like a live service thing or like i i mean yeah you have to kind of probably. imagine it probably is but yeah given that from you know gta online to all of the updates that they do not inside not only just in grand theft auto but across uh, a number of their properties the company is certainly built more and more for you know continually updating their properties i expect that uh, yeah gta 6 will be a continually updated and ever expanding gta universe for them i'm i'm actually quite nervous for the launch of this game because gta plays such a massive role in culture i find like in the gaming culture it sets a tone and there's a lot to be corrected from gta 5 and I really, really hope that GTA 6 is more modern in terms of, you know, how you treat women and how they portray different cultures, be, you know, more realistic and less GTA 5. So take two, Rockstar, deliver us a up-to-date culture game, please. Um, you play a very influential role. That's my petition. <laughs> I guess, well, I guess if if we do get that trailer you know soon hopefully it'll be like enough content to get an idea what's coming and not just like a teaser i mean obviously like that they're not saying exactly what's going to be in it or anything like that so i got to imagine they're going to try and ramp up to it it is kind of funny to like release a trailer for a game for next year just before christmas this year it's like get get people excited for something they can't buy yet i mean unless they're going to start pre-sales for for christmas that would be pretty nuts but i suppose that in theory they could right where if it's that hyped um and and i got to wonder like what effect this may or may not have on GTA five, you know, monetization, because it's still like an ongoing game, right? Where will they get some kind of slowdown, say going into spring or summer where people are just like, I'll save my money for GTA six. Or it's just like, we're just going to ride this till, you know, the wheels fall off and six comes out. And I imagine there might be at least some weakness towards the end. Right. But we see plenty of live service games that just kind of wait to less. Like, and I'm sure, you know, like modern warfare two is still probably monetizing. Okay right before three comes out here, for example, because they, they tried to make sure that like people knew it was okay to keep spending money on it. They're announcing it now so that people are able to save their money to be able to afford the $200 and $300 special versions of the game when it comes out. Uh, uh, they might also be uh, keeping it for December for their earnings in December. Might, yeah, might help pull through the rest of the quarter with the excitement. <laughs> And I think uh, obviously, like we, we like the assumption was this was GTA because, like when it was announced a while back, right? Because of the the Take Two just doesn't have anything else this large, 
to really impact. I mean, unless they've got a project, you know, no one knows about, right? So that does also mean that like, you know, this is a pretty important project for Take-Two. So I would imagine they're going to try and make sure that this launch goes well. And I got to imagine the marketing power once it actually goes full tilt next year and they actually have like the game kind of like moving towards that release date, it's probably going to be nuts. Like, I mean, obviously we're moving away a little bit from like traditional like TV commercials, but I imagine like there, there'll be those plus streaming. Well, well, I imagine we'll get, I, we're to the point where you might see commercials in movie theaters uh, for something like this, I imagine. Oh, definitely. At least here in England, you already have uh, ads for games in the theaters. Yeah. And in terms of uh, GTA five, um, I mean, they've done a fantastic job of being able to keep their retail price up pretty high for that game you know drop it down to twenty dollars and it could see still a decent tail for quite some time i have a, i have a rule i generally only buy playstation games since they reach the 30 dollar mark or lower and i've been waiting since gta 5 launched for the price to come down and i it, it never has maybe now maybe now i'll play gta 5 well you still have the, the classic or the greatest hits kind of series or whatever it was for like the PlayStation that was like the $20 ones where they'd all hit that price point for retail. But uh, yeah, like now, like I guess if they could just charge a premium for it, they can. But to be fair, like we're also at a period now where you could play it over Game Pass, at least for a period of time. Like who knows when they'll turn that off. But for the moment, like people that do, that did miss out can always play that way, assuming they have, you know, Game Pass at high enough tier for it. But I don't know how that game would run with that. Uh, but, you know, I, g- given that uh, it could be a bit of a, a processor intensive it's actually kind of nice to be able to run in the cloud but speaking yeah, of games running on for a while after they're they're getting a little old and, and trying to get that throwback in there Fortnite trying to bring back some nostalgia successfully yes i was not aware of this until it took over my twitter timeline and i decided i want to dig into it further so they released an og celebration season that's going to last for four weeks instead of the usual three months And the game is going to be updated regularly throughout the season where they're going to be releasing, bringing back uh, content that existed in the OG seasons of Fortnite. And they brought back the original map and some classic locations. I think one is the the tower, like Twisted Tower or something like that. Anyway. And we're speaking about it because the concurrent player count this year was averaging around 1.8 to 2 million. And we saw a spike in August when they released their new season and it peaked to 2.8 million. But with the release of the OG season, the all-time peak has reached 6 million and a total of around 45 million players joined during the weekend to play the season. And so really like hats off to to Epic. This is a major win for them. And I was looking at some benchmarks and there was a game called The Finals that was in open beta during the weekend, I believe. It was trending on Steam, it was trending on Twitch. It's like this chaotic destruction mechanic and that had 7.5 million players. And so, you know, with the peak almost reaching with the new game, that's pretty amazing and i love the context that the guardians newsletter put is like 10 times the number of people who watched the premiere of last of us and last of us is pretty popular anyway i like that stat and so i was looking into like why is the og season bringing such amount of players and so fortnite changed a lot since his release i think it was like in 2017 
And so the maps used to be more bare bones. You didn't have like all these NPCs and all of this mobility, like swimming and mounts. It used to have the build mode. And now the no build mode is as popular as the build mode. The game also used to be more hardcore, especially with the build. It used to have like a lot of what what's called like sweaty players. And Fortnite evolved to attract a, a broader a broader audience. It became less hardcore. And just over time, by nature, they start adding more to the maps. Yeah, becoming, I don't know, more more fun, <laughs> more accessible to jump in. And so what really captured my attention here is that I think this is one of the first examples where we see that nostalgia works for Gen Z too. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And so if you're growing up with Fortnite and you're an OG player, now you're a bit older, maybe you moved on to COD. And now you have the OG season and we see like these new, I guess, more modern uh, Fortnite players joining in with the influx of the um, of the OG players. And then in terms of why this is a major win for Fortnite, they've been seeing their player count in decline. We know with the layoffs and changing into their creator economy that they need to refill their coffers, plus all of the costs that are going into these legal battles that they're fighting in the name of the industry. And especially looking at the creator economy, where you have the, this UGC content being created, you need eyeballs in order to scale. And so what better than to bring in your old audience, like re reactivate them, join them with your current audience and create that peak. And so I'm really interested. I don't know if they're going to share these KPIs, but I love to know the KPIs in terms of what percentage of returning players are now engaging with the UGC maps and UGC content. So looking forward to, to hearing that. I have a little bit more in terms of whether I think the player account will sustain, but before jumping into that, do you have any thoughts? I guess looking at uh, World of Warcraft data from, from the similar kind of thing where they tried where they did the vanilla and brought back like they managed to bring back a lot of lapsed players for a period of time, but I think over like over time that kind of diminishes a little bit. Those especially if that's a that's an example where the players are maybe a bit older than Fortnite players in terms of the gap, but it does mean like oftentimes they might be in another phase of their life or something like that where they've transitioned on. It's like not necessarily just that the maybe sick of the game, but they're just also like doing other stuff, playing other things. And so like bringing people back, like I remember when WoW Vanilla came out, like it brought a lot of people back. People were really excited. People hadn't played in a long time and like, and Blizzard kind of, you know, tried to take advantage of that a lot, as long as they could. But at some point, like those people kind of go back to their real life. And so I, I got to imagine like there's going to be like some window, but at the same time, like there is like the possibility to, to continue this even past when Epic does it, thanks to the, the, Unreal Editor for Fortnite stuff where people could make the islands and stuff that recreate the OG content and kind of keep it going as long as there's interest in it, at least. And I got to imagine people will do that just hoping that their island will be popular and stuff like that. I think from a content perspective also, it's like another big reason why people are, are in there and interested. And so I think of the people that joined, you know, Fortnite a couple of seasons in and there was, you know, store content that they just didn't have access to. You know, as, as um, Epic brings out new characters, new maps, and so forth. You know, those are the things that people are able to purchase, able to interact with. But you know, offering the ability to go back in time and seeing some of those characters and be able to acquire some of those characters that they that they missed out on, 
gives people you know a reason to to really be interested in you know seeing if they can you know add them to their to their roster of characters in addition to the people you know wanting to come back and experience what they first experienced when playing Fortnite. Yeah, looking at the numbers, I'd say it's still too early to tell whether they will stick around and sustain. The best I could do was dig into the Reddit communities and see what people were saying. Overall, I don't believe Fortnite will keep this direction as permanent because players do enjoy the more lively maps, the NPCs, um, what the game is now. And so there's a lot of comments about the old map being like slow, it's bare, it's empty, it doesn't feel like the world's alive. And so, but then at the same time, I've also seen players say, finally, my device can play Fortnite because the, the, there's less, you know, less performance requirements for the game to work. And that made me think whether, you know, maybe, maybe Fortnite will learn from this and have a, a game mode that is more bare bones so that it, it does what Garena Free Fire did for countries that are mainly lower performing devices by having a game that runs more smoothly. And so we'll see. We'll see. I, I truly believe that for them to stick around, it could very likely come down to that percentage of how many of those players start engaging in the broader ecosystem of Fortnite. And if they can fall in love with the more modern content. But yeah, nothing nothing I can say from the numbers now. And then my last thought on this topic, maybe I'm a bit late to arrive at this conclusion, but it was a conclusion nonetheless that it just puts into so much context Fortnite's move and Epic's move to the Unreal Editor for Fortnite. Because we can see how a game becomes so popular that you just cannot satisfy so so many different opposing player personas that want different things from the game and fortnite is already a major content treadmill and we talked about this in terms of destiny as well and the content is expensive to make and now if you have to make that content for very different player personas that is a major cost for the studio and so moving towards this ugc system where players are building for players, it allows Fortnite to satisfy more and more personalized player personas within their within their ecosystem. So again, I might be a bit late to this conclusion. <laughs> but yeah, how do you do you agree with this take? I'm curious about your thoughts. I do because it's not only just the content, it's the style of content. So again, going with the what you're talking about player personas. Like if you look at Roblox, one of the great things about that is that there are so many different types of games inside there built by the players because that's the type of thing that they want to do. There are a number of experiences that I really wouldn't have expected to be, you know, so high up on terms of the charts in terms of engagement, but it was players building something that they wanted to wanted to play. And so by Epic giving them, you know, their their players a place to play, play, you know, a playground to to make the things that they want to do inside that universe. Yeah, I think it's a a great move for them and it certainly does, you know, address all of those different player personas and uh, everything from a, a simpler version of Fortnite, you know, it's easier to run all the way through to, you know, I really love playing with the style of characters and be able to, you know, play inside the Fortnite universe, but having a completely different experience where Fortnite becomes a pizza delivery game instead of trying to, you know, have a a battle royale. 
I'd play that pizza delivery game instead of the battle royale. <laughs> well, this is also just like a good learning experience for Epic either way, because it, first off, they could see like the contrast between the old and the new stuff to see whether or not they made the right decisions on the way they moved direction wise. Like obviously there'll be the people whining vocally and like you can take a little bit of that uh, and kind of read between the lines, but you also can look at what people do and what people are excited about. If they're just playing like the old vanilla stuff for like a hot second, but then really itching to go back to the other stuff, then clearly like, okay, those things were the right direction. But if people are like, I don't really want to play the new stuff anymore. I want to play this old stuff then you have to look at like what you changed that, you know, obviously the resource hog thing is one thing, but the Unreal Engine just keeps getting beefier and beefier. So that's kind of like inevitable at that point. But the the other thing is like, you know, when they look at what people are building in the, the UGC platform and it's like, oh yeah, if it's for niche audience, cool, you can kind of leave it alone, let the people build stuff for each other. But if you see like something really successful, maybe you don't have to necessarily like steal the idea, but you can certainly learn from it and see what to incorporate into main Fortnite. I mean, obviously we have a lot of platform companies that do that, like Apple and, and Amazon, they're infamous for just kind of like taking a successful idea that someone else built on their platform and then making it themselves and kind of edging the other people out. Epic doesn't seem like that kind of company, but again, it's 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 great learning for them because obviously it's not just metrics in terms of like player bases and stuff, but there's like money involved with the creator shares and stuff like that. So they could definitely see what's successful. Whereas like Roblox doesn't have like a proper game itself to necessarily compete with the the games within it. Obviously, Fortnite is like a game within that ecosystem, so they built it off that instead. I don't imagine they're going to be like, oh, let's steal the pizza delivery idea, let's steal every other like game mod and, and shove it in here. But same time, like if they see like the trend of what Fortnite's doing is waning in favor of these other mods and stuff like that, they could definitely take advantage of that. Like, why not? Right? Like you're building that platform. It, obviously, you just have to make sure not screw over your creators when you do that. I mean, but speaking of platforms uh, screwing over people, Epic's still in the battle here against this now Google uh, instead of Apple, but maybe a continuation, maybe not. But this is OG map for Epic at this point. The battle continues. So as a bit of a recap, so Epic did face off against Apple inside the courts. They're trying to battle what the, against what they saw as a monopolistic fee in terms of their 30% and unfortunately for Epic, that battle did not go their way. Pretty much it was a summary judgment against Epic. I think there was only one count that did go their way. Everything else went Apple's way. Now, this is still all in the court system. I think it's uh, making its way up to the Supreme Court at this point. But uh, it's now the Epic versus Google turn. Now, there are some definitely some differences between what happened with Apple uh, versus what's going to be coming about with Google right now. The, the same, it's the same core concept uh, from Epic's perspective. You have an entity that's uh, controlling you know, a very large component, if not in the case of Apple, all of it. But the differences here are Google uh, as compared to Apple doesn't own, they isn't the only Android store. Uh, it does allow for things such as uh, side loading. Um, but if you dive down into the metrics, 90% of all downloads are through the Google store versus uh, through Samsung or any of the other Android stores that are out there. Uh, and Google still does require payment happening through them. The other big change or big difference, I think, is this time around versus with Apple 
the Apple court case was, it was a judge. It was a judge who was ideally took the time to have a good understanding of the technical landscape. They have an understanding of what the marketplace looks like. In this particular case, this is a jury trial. So you're now dealing with situations of you know the potential for consumer emotions in play, and especially now given the time where people you know are, are are struggling a little bit in terms of finances and and you know will they have a different perspective in terms of yes big tech can take the thirty percent and that's what they deserve, or is it more of a case of well you know it really shouldn't be that. Uh, that much of a of a take. They've already introduced some of the current arguments that they or some of the arguments that they had with Apple, especially when it comes around the PC store landscape. How Epic, you know, really forced uh, a number of uh, stores to change their revenue share, where they're at 88, uh, 12% in terms of their share. Microsoft ending up going to that that particular model. They made the argument that Steam chose 30% only because that's what the marketplace was charging at that point, not because there was any real, you know, any any real reason for that percentage other than that's what everybody else is doing. So I do expect we'll be seeing a lot of the same arguments as they, they brought forward during the Apple um, trial. I think, unfortunately for Epic, some of them are not quite as uh, strong just because Google is able to point out that you know you can sideload apps, you can go to different stores, you don't have to get the games through the Apple or through the Google Play Store. But I think Epic will probably counter that with, well, anytime you do try to sideload something, you have to go through a wide variety of setting changes. You have to accept the really dire you know, warnings from Google saying, hey, by the way, if you sideload this particular piece, you may compromise your entire phone and and you'll lose all of your money and, and your children and everything. So really don't sideload this game. You should really do it through the through the Google store. So yeah, so I, I think it'll be interesting. I expect Tim Sweeney and uh the CEO for uh, Google will be you know presenting their sides of the cases uh, inside the coming weeks. But yeah, I'm I'm really interested in seeing what the difference between having uh, a judge, you know, has taken the time to be to become very well versed in what the marketplace is actually like, versus having a jury, and see if there's any difference in the rulings there. Thoughts? You covered. I have nothing to add. Yeah, for me, I, I don't I don't quite understand the strategy, right? Like, I would say, like, okay, get win the case against Apple, and then like fight against Google because as you said like it, it seems like Google is better positioned to to defend themselves in in this in this case right like so if if you haven't managed to win the case against Apple what makes you think like you could win against Google and like the, otherwise it seems like a waste of money I do think that they are Looking at some of the things that have uh, transpired where um, a number of the attorney generals in in the states uh, brought forth a similar type of lawsuit against Google, Um, but in the end, they ended up settling. That wasn't a case where they actually won. I believe Match.com or the Match Group also ended up having a settlement with them 
where the they were able to implement a user choice billing, so offering different payment options. But you know, same as other stores, you know, the games the game side of the stores tend to be held in a slightly different set of circumstances as other as other parts of other or other apps that are downloaded through the stores. <clears throat> if you look at the differences between what the revenue share is for games versus other apps, there are certainly differences inside the stores. So yeah, on the game side, I agree. I mean, they're, Epic's going in with not as much of a, a winning hand against Google. I'm just wondering if it's maybe timing, if they think that the potential for sediment against uh, big tech is there and that they they you know want to take advantage of that right now or or what the situation is but yeah i i agree I believe they had a, they had a stronger case with apple and if but you know that's not going to get resolved anytime soon that's going to go through the courts yeah. for quite a while still so i remembered at the time when epic was in the courts with apple that they were they had already started their suit is that how you <laughs> my I need to watch more judicial dramas that Epic had. Yeah, Epic sued Google in 2020 after a fight over in-app purchase fees. And so it just had a really long road to get to court. And in the meantime, the Apple suit has uh, reached its conclusion and only now. So they haven't filed recently. This, this has been filed a long time ago. And now they also have um, allegations that Google paid Activision Blizzard and Riot Games. I think we discussed this on one yeah. episode. And they said, oh, we're going to do our own mobile store. And Google was like, take some money. Yeah, that was uh, the hug, the golden hug or something like that. What? Uh, that I'm trying to remember. Weird. <laughs> but basically it was. It was very much, they will look at who the top developers were um, and would pay money towards them in 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 hope of enticing them to stay within the inside the ecosystem. And that will be brought up again. If it hasn't already, I'm sure that will be brought up again. But you're right, yeah, that was brought up during the Apple trial. I got to say though like uh, the the payment o- or the the fight over payments, I think is a part of this that make maybe makes some sense like if everyone's if Google forces everyone to use their payment system regardless of how they're going through it and like at the end of the day like it's it's you know obviously cuz they make Android, right? And they're kind of giving Android out and like this is their way of like kind of like making sure that they get some kickback from that. But at the same time, like that, if people are building all these other side things and doing all this work to do that, then they probably, I think it's fair that they, you know, be able to have their own payment options for that. Whereas, especially from Google, who's very like web friendly, everything should work through the web and all that stuff. So the fact that they're not like being like, hey, Exola, we can work with you or something. You know, one of those ones that's like very web friendly to say like, let's make a deal with these companies. If they're going to have a golden hug to anyone, like give a golden hug to these other payment rails and then settle on that part. Because the part that like where they're defending on the, the side loading of the store actually is pretty fair. Because like it generally you shouldn't be loading random APKs because they are infecting people pretty frequently. And that happens a lot. It's not like a random thing where like occasionally there's malware, there's malware in the store regularly. Like Google's not doing the greatest job of always protecting that. But like, I think, I think argument there is pretty weak. I mean, I obviously not on the jury, but if I was, I'd be like, come on, like they're not being Apple right now. Like that's the big difference is Apple's very like, you do what we say we're going to do. Like, that's it. And Google's like, yeah, you could do some stuff. Like, if you look at the recent stuff on Web3, I think it shows like their ability to be pretty flexible in areas where you're not really like taking too much advantage of them. Even on the payment stuff, they weren't being like Apple where they're like, nope, all the payment stuff has to go through us when it came to like NFTs. 
So I think, I don't know, that sounds like the area where maybe they need to find something that works. Yeah. And developers are, you know, looking at what are those payment things that they can do in order to get around that. And so, you know, you look at Scopely and the games that they had originally as mobile games, they're now offering cross-platform. And hey, look, when you, you know, purchase stuff on the PC, it could be either, you know, for the game developer, it's either they're getting a a better percentage because, uh, you know, their payout to Exola is a lot smaller or they're able to offer it at a, at a different uh, different number. Well, I think my, my perspective here is that I appreciate Epic doing this for the smaller developers that don't have the money for these legal costs. So thank you. Thank you, Epic. Because when you... I hear a lot that the recommendation to mobile gaming studios is just do a web shop. And then you'll take less of a cut. But actually, you, say, you do save, but you don't save as much as you think you might because you can't do your own financial back office and so you have to use a payment provider that's merchant of record and they're going to take a much larger percentage fee than is you know one may assume um if it were to use a payment a payment system where they do not provide the merchant of record when you look at the cost of building a very sorry building maintaining and creating a scalable experience for a web shop that comes with costs you need to expand your team to have you know the team member side that you need to to perform that work and then you have the community and the marketing costs to try to educate your audience to trust and go to the web shop but then you have like false links. There are false web shops. And then you have to spend time trying to protect your players from going good to the right web shop. So like there's all these complications, not as simple as create a web shop and the, the problem will go away. And that's why I think it should be something where they try and work with the, these companies to facilitate a safe way of doing that, where like games are link, allowed to link out to these web shops from the app. So, you know, it's a trusted thing because it's from within. I mean, if the game's compromised, the game's compromised. Not much you can do at that point. But like, I think there's if, if it's safety is the issue, right? There's like a, a, a way to make that work. And the, obviously, like the thing with the APKs is an example of like they've actually compromised pretty well, like the, the workflow to like install APKs because I install ones like that all the time, especially in Web3, uh, it's not that bad. Like compared to Apple stuff, especially like what they do on desktop now uh, with all this code signing and stuff, it's actually pretty reasonable when it comes to like a compromise with cybersecurity. But like, as you mentioned, like web shop stuff can be a little tricky, right? Like that was one of Epic's arguments was that, you know, people were going to shady places to download Fortnite and stuff like that. And that is kind of a problem where just like, what can you do about user error? And I think if Google like allows a certain amount of that, which is interesting because like that was... The one thing that Epic won versus Apple was the steering, like the steering to online stuff was the thing that they actually had some success on. So there's the possibility here that Google sees that and is like, let's just compromise there and call it a day. Like, I, I don't know if they will, but they, at that point, then it's a waste of money, to, I think, to continue to pursue it. If you could just find a good compromise with, with Google and get the golden hug, you know, in court. And I think everyone will be happy. But speaking of companies moving on from uh, companies trying to leech off of them, EA managed to to move away from uh, FIFA, and it sounds like maybe successfully. Yeah, indeed, did and this this is what the they are claiming. So, well, for those of you that are not very familiar with with this, so EA have like this football franchise uh, named FIFA, and like for for, for many years, but uh, they were going to renew the the licensing. Like uh, FIFA asked for a billion dollars 
and they'd say, okay, no, that's too much. We are going to to break the deal and like we will rebrand ourselves. And uh, something that worked well, according to the first early results, has worked very well for for EA. So EA Sports FC, the rebranded game from EA, has registered like fourteen point five million active accounts in the first four weeks. So this is a significant increase compared to FIFA twenty three, that was the last game with the with the name in, in the franchise which reached 10 million players in the first week. So this is like very successful metrics and has led to increased revenue and earnings from for EA. So it seems like overall, like that the money that they had to spend in marketing to like make aware of the people that this is still like the same game, but with different name has been the like lower than the amount of money that they needed to pay FIFA. And like they, they used to pay FIFA, like, because they should have given FIFA this time like a, a larger amount. So this is like great news for them. Also like the mobile version set records with 2 million installs on the first day and 11 million in its first 10 days. EA Sports FC has, uh, was the third best-selling title in September and they expect like low single growth for the franchise in, in the full year, which, well, quite good results indeed. Like for me, it was a bit surprising because uh, like... I've been a player of these games for, for a long time and we had like Pro Evolution Soccer was the competitor of FIFA back in the days that right now is renamed as eFootball, but still there and it's free to play. And it's surprising for me that like well, Sports FC has managed that large amount of a user base in such short amount of time, like despite of the rebranding, given that the, the, the main competitor is free to play and the, you can get there. So I guess that probably is like this network effect. So if you want to play with your friends, they are there and then you like eventually move there because you want to play with them. Uh, so quite, quite interesting results. So I don't know. What, what do you think? Like maybe this like creates like a thought in EA, EA leadership, like saying, okay, maybe we need to reconsider the deals that we have with other brands and like maybe think twice whether to continue with them. I think the FIFA arrangement is probably a little bit different than like an NFL or an, or any of the major franchises in part because while the FIFA brand is gone, they still have all their other licensing deals with the players and with the clubs. And I think that is, at least for me, when I was, when I played a lot of FIFA at the time, that's what I was most excited about was that I was playing with a particular club or I was playing with a particular set of players. Whereas I think if you lost like the NFL license, then you wouldn't have the Dallas Cowboys, the Miami Dolphins, the, you know, the, the Patriots. So you lose all of that, that club branding, which is still very much a big part of, of the NFL experience, you know, people being a fan of a particular uh, club. So I think the the things that you know most important for players is still very much part of the the football club experience, at yeah. least from my perspective. And they chose Haaland, and they you know from Man City who won Champions League, and he's one of the most recognizable players nowadays with this with his strike record. You don't even need to have FIFA there. It's like you see Haaland, you see it's a, a football game. You know probably if you're into these football games that eFootball doesn't have a great reputation unfortunately when they transitioned to eFootball Pej really lost like quality and it was a very buggy experience 
And so I think a yeah, fantastic transition. I completely agree with you, Dave, that it's a particular case because they do still have the licensing. They really only lost the FIFA name. And that's not that's no longer, I believe, like what drives players to want to play FIFA game. It's the quality of the experience, the physics, the 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 licensing with the teams. Mm. And even marketing wise, like I don't even see any marketing when with 404 eFootball. I just see what's it called now? <laughs> it doesn't even matter. It's not eFootball. What was it called? EA, EA Sports, Sports FC. FC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a very recognizable name. Yeah. For me, it's even hard to pronounce. I don't know why they like. I don't know. Choose different name, something more catchy. I would say, but like maybe they wanted to just keep it like bare minimum. Football the club. They have a brand now that they that they successfully transitioned, and now they could do whatever they want with it. Like we talked a little bit about this before too. Like now they could do spinoffs. Now they could do whatever, and they don't have to deal with cutting FIFA into that, right? Because the, like the idea is like if if they were doing it under FIFA at the time, right? And they went to do like a spinoff, they'd want the recognition of the other game towards say a mobile game or whatever it was, right? And they'd need that. Now, if they built up the brand recognition around this, they could do whatever they want with it. It's their brand at that point. They picked kind of a name that doesn't really mean much. It could stand for football club. It could stand for whatever. It's just FC. And so that was, I mean, pretty smart in terms of like, if if all that FIFA was bringing was a brand name and they could cut that out, this this seems like a great opportunity, especially since they get to keep the more important part of the brand name, which is the ultimate team part, right? That's still a trademark they own and they still get to use this part of this. And like, everyone knows that part. And I think like the audience, I think as you guys mentioned, like the, the audience for this kind of game is not going to be like, oh, where'd FIFA go? I guess I'll stop buying these games. Like they're just like, oh, it's FC now. Okay. And like, because at the, at the end of the day, like the underlying game was still built by the same people. Like it's still, if it was transitioning to a different company making it, that would be like a much bigger risk. But the fact that EA still continue to make it, whether you, you know, whether you like the way EA does that or not, if obviously you've been buying them every year, then you want to keep going with that. This is like a no brainer for that audience. Like you're not going to be like, ah, I, I like FIFA too much to, you know, to, to buy this anymore. It's like, I mean, it was, it was a, a name that was pretty ubiquitous with this sort of thing. And it's going to take time, I think for EA to like replace that in kind of like just the way people talk about, Oh, I'm playing some, FC, like the way people talk about playing FIFA is like, I've seen it in movies, see it in TV shows, like it's, you know, thing, but now that's going to be awkward transition. But at the same time, FIFA is not exactly a well-respected organization at this point. Mm. So I don't think anyone's shedding any tears <laughs> over that loss. Uh, no. So it, this is just a good opportunity for EA. And it like, it does, it does prove though to potentially other companies and EA, like there's opportunity for making these kind of transitions. If you're in the right position, like this licensing deal was the right set up for that. It's also a situation where they've built up that fan base and have the position to be able to make that transition. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes with FC 25. Obviously there could be some big downturn or change, but I, I think this succeeding was kind of like almost a given unless they flubbed the game itself. I'm curious to see how many of the people came on. They were wondering about, you know, how much of a new change it was for the game. Like how many people would come in and go, okay, well, this is actually the same thing as FIFA 23, just with a different name on the cover and a couple of players have transitioned to different teams. Or if they felt like it was part of like an overall rebranding, not just from a title and, and a little bit of splashy graphics, but if there were any changes to the gameplay or the feel of the game. So uh, I think you're right. It'll be interesting to see what uh, the the feedback is on, on uh, 
FC25. Yeah, indeed. I was curious of that, right? Because like I, I didn't have the chance to, to really compare both. But like I remember back in the days when I was younger and didn't have like uh, much money to spend on games, so I was deciding to like skip one version because it's like okay, well the changes are not so big, and well I, I don't matter if I the the, the the players are not updated, like still the game is feel the same and I'm playing with my colleagues, so it's, it's still fun. So I don't know how, uh, if they have like added like a big novelty or additions this time, like really make players to, to want to to migrate to the newest version, not just because of the, the rebranding, but because of the, they feel that there is something new that uh, is worth it. Yeah, and they released female players, I believe, for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how much, if we can see a correlation between the growth of the audience of female football, especially like I know women who started to watch football because they're watching women and that's more fun. It's more relatable. And, you know, with the World Cup and the Euro, that's growing in a lot of popularity. I'm curious to see if there's going to be a correlation of seeing um, an audience growth for the game and also more female percentage because I think it's very male skewed currently mm-hmm. the player base yeah. so like they're tapping in this whole new market potentially over the next two three years that because I know in terms of other sports as a sport grows in popularity your games audience has that correlation and I'm fairly certain we're going to see that with EA, EA Sports FC yeah I don't know also how this could correlate with uh, unit solve of PS5 so maybe like people have bought the PS5 after like maybe or like well it wasn't worth to to buy FIFA uh, 23 so they'd say okay I will wait for the next one right and like this correlates a little bit with the thing that we were saying like maybe just keep one version because there's not much novelty so it was just good timing for them to do this transition in when people are migrating to PS5. I'm sure with all that stuff if the metrics back up any of that in a way that makes ea look good they'll talk about it otherwise we won't hear about it right like that's Definitely. that's how it comes with, with these sorts of metrics where like we don't have that data so if they're like yeah like all these people are playing it now because there's female players or or all these people are playing now because they have ps5s uh, and our ps5 attach rate to you which like I'm sure they'll tout it and we'll you know hear about it later on but if not then it, or if the numbers aren't big enough then they probably just won't say um and that's you know that's all we can i guess get from these companies but at the end of the day, like I actually am kind of like I'm not always a big champion of like company big companies like EA, but I think this was kind of a success for everyone uh, except FIFA, which I think worked out like probably not a good move to strong arm that and and hopefully like it leads to like other good transitions for companies and not any ones where they're just like hey let's cut this big brand out that actually is a good brand. So I mean we'll see right. This is definitely going to be something other games are going to look at like you know Madden franchise even or like just any of these right. Well, I mean you obviously had ones that were like just NBA 2K or, you know, those kinds of things where there's sort of other attempts at sort of making those generic brands that we've seen before. So, you know, you know lessons to be learned, but uh, at the same time, like it's good that their investment money went far. Cause I'm sure it wasn't just investment money in the marketing, but they also had to transition a lot of assets that they don't normally have to, right. Because they kind of repurpose them between years. So I'm sure this was like a, a pretty big investment for EA in a number of areas. And I, and I imagine there's the chance that maybe it actually didn't, turn out profitable, but they're not going to say that. And they'll just take that into FC25. So we'll see how that does come uh, Christmas as well. We obviously haven't seen the holiday season to see how this carries into that or not, because this is, again, the kind of game that can potentially be like a holiday gift sort of thing, because it's an annual thing. Uh, So we'll have to see. I already heard a a Christmas song on the radio today. 
It's tis Christmas season. Yeah, Halloween's over, unfortunately. Black Friday before, right? So, yeah, that's true. I wonder if we'll see many digital deals come Black Friday. I guess we'll have to get into that in the post Black Friday episode. And if you before we Monday, oh Cyber Monday. Before we wrap up, I just want to compliment Felipe's T-shirt. I feel you're like the superhero of free to play (laughs) because you have like in the center of your chest a gem. Whenever I saw, I was like, buy some gems. Well, I wanted to thank everyone for, thank you, thank for listening you. and, of course, our panelists as well for bringing some good topics today. Lots of good stuff to talk about. And hopefully we get you know some good news continuing into the, the following weeks as I know it had been a little bit of a slow period before. But as we go into the holiday season, people are going to be looking for a lot of sales attention. So I imagine we'll get quite a bit more as well as earnings seasons has been kicking off. So I imagine there'll be some good stuff there to chew on, especially when Aaron's around. Of course, he's always a good one for that one. But uh, thanks everyone for for tuning in as well, of course, for another week. And make sure to you know, enjoy the rest of your weekend. And if you're not already, subscribe to the digest and uh, get lots of good, good content. But anyways, we'll see you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.